Hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of White Works. I'm Niv Musan. With me here is Hey, it's Ethan Wolf with you again. And uh, today we're going to be learning some awesome things about the applications of quantum electrodynamics, building upon our last episode. Oh my God, what a great way to open up my morning gate. <laughs> I just got back from the beach and I was all thrilled to hear what you have to teach me today. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm always excited to start my day with physics. <laughs> physics and cereal. Unfortunately, not today, but soon. <laughs> Once I get back to the States and get some, uh, get some unhealthy American cereal, yeah. <laughs> You're now in Israel, right? Uh, you're visiting your family. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of leaving maybe maybe in a week or so. Either head to, like, I'm not sure, maybe Romania or, or Istanbul. Or, yeah, I, I have no idea. You know, the world's my oyster. We'll figure it out. Teach me how to live. Until then, teach me about quantum physics. So tell me, Ethan, what are we getting ourselves into today? Yeah, so today we are now going to talk about the applications of quantum electrodynamics, essentially building upon what we were talking about in our last episode. You know, we kind of touched base on like what electrodynamics allowed us to start creating, but we didn't really get into it as deep as I would like to. So today we're going to be talking about some like really cool topics, lasers. A little fun fact, uh, the actual theory about how lasers could even be created was proposed by Einstein in the 1920s. So I owe Einstein all the crazy parties that I went to with, I have, a, I have this thing with lasers that just lights up a whole room. And that was my thing for like a year. So yeah, that's... man. Oh. And that uh that like laser laser light thing you have like in your crib where it's like uh it like lights up the living room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, same exact thing. I live for that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So like you know, appreciate that guy. But uh but yeah, so um we're gonna talk about lasers, we're gonna talk about MRI machines, which have saved countless lives. We're also going to talk about photovoltaic cells. Photovoltaic cells are essentially the battery sources that solar cells use, or solar panels. Would my, I would really want to understand how that works and what's the physics behind it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, again, it's all guided by the fact that you know we figured out quantum electrodynamics without this science or without this physics we really wouldn't have all of these amazing advancements like we have today uh one other device i do want to talk about is uh the electron microscope what is that so pretty much microscopes that everyone is used to or like introduced to since like they were a kid or you know since like anyone was in school really um all it does is use light right Mm -hmm. You know, essentially light is being projected uh, from the bottom of the microscope through the sample, and that magnifies whatever you're looking at. Because mm -hmm. it's, electron... it's going through a mirror or something like that, like it uh, enlargens the object. Exactly. Right. It magnifies it. Um, but... Now, instead of using light, we're actually going to be using electrons. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it gets really cool. Um, but I want to save that for maybe towards the end because it gets a bit more messy. Sad bit. Just because now instead of you know using light, which uh, essentially is being used as waves in a regular or optical microscope, we're now using the uh, wave-like property or the, the idea of wave-particle duality mm -hmm. to have electrons essentially being these waves. And that's kind of, you know, it's different to think about because we've never really, we've currently only really talked about electrons being particles. We haven't yet talked about them being waves as well. When we refer to them as waves, we have to take in the whole factor that uh, they have a probabilistic nature, that they can either be that or that until they have an observation occurred or, or something takes form in reality. Yeah, that, that's, exact, that's exactly right. 
And so it gets a little bit more messy and I want to save that one towards the end. But for now, what do you want to talk about first? Because I'm cool let's with dive, Let's dive into lasers. I yep. love doing <laughs> own shout out to Albert Einstein for allowing me to have this addiction. I wonder if I had been born a hundred years ago, I probably wouldn't even be exposed to lasers as a concept. And if you've seen my, my house and, and my room, it's all lit <laughs> and the stuff. So that's something that really affected my personal life. So let's dive into mechanics or quantum mechanics of that. That makes it work. Okay. Yeah. So first off, one thing to say is that the term laser is actually an acronym. So laser stands for light amplified by the stimulated emission of radiation. Light, what's the A stand for again? Amplified, light amplified. Again. Again. (laughs) All right. So light amplification. So just, you know, amplifying by the stimulated emission. What's emission? So uh, stimulated emission is actually uh, the property that was brought up by Einstein, which led the way or paved the path for these devices. This is actually going to bring us to our first point. What is stimulated emission? Now, stimulated emission is essentially the idea that if a electron in an atom is in a excited state, do you remember what excited states were? Or it means that it's moving fast, right? And it's uh, just bouncing around. Not exactly. So, um, excited state in the terms of atoms. So you know how, like in the atoms, you have your ground state. So that's your lowest energy state, your lowest orbital. Mm-hmm. Then you have your first excited state, which is a state in which the electrons have more energy. And you have a second, you have a second excited state, third, so on and so forth. It defines the uh, the distance from the core. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can interpret it that way, just for the sake of simplicity. Because when you get into uh, the whole quantum mechanical description of an atom, you end up finding out that electrons are actually existing in these things called orbital clouds. An orbital cloud is basically like, think about it as a space around the atom, like a cloud. And essentially, the electron can be in any of the points of space-time or any of the points of space. Holistic nature. Exactly, exactly. And so we have this different interpretation, and that leads to the whole idea of orbitals and basically atomic structure. We'll get to atomic structure in another episode, just because it's it's really cool and it's super important. Yeah. For our purposes, let's just think about let's think about the nucleus, you know, the center of the atom. And then let's think about little rings that go concentric outside of the atom. That you, you know, you have your ground state, and then your first state, so on and so forth. Now, uh, basically, your first excited state will be the next ring up. And now, what stimulated emission means is that for an electron in an atomic uh, structure, an electron in an atom, when it's in a excited state. If you send a photon or you send light through towards this atom, it can stimulate the atom to drop from the excited state to the ground state. It goes down so, closer for this topic, goes closer mm-hmm. to the nucleus, so it lowers exactly. the energy levels. It, that's exactly right, yeah. So it lowers the energy. What happens from that is, remember how we were talking about for how uh, LED light strips work? You know, it has electric charge going through it, and these electrons are moving, and then they move from the uh, higher to a lower state, mm-hmm. and that sends out photons, mm-hmm. or it sends out light. The same exact principle is applied for stimulated emission. Wait, hold so on. when it, it sends out light because I'm, in my mind, just to, to get it to get it clear for myself, maybe it's not scientific, but I imagine that it has a lot of energy or, or a lot of uh, baggage on it. And in order mm-hmm. to go to a lower state, uh, a lower energy state, 
you need to send out some energy or some potential and it comes out as light maybe heat as well that no that that's exactly right that's ex- that's exactly the physics so you got the physics right on point so yeah um so exactly the way that the electron is able to get rid of this extra energy and go from you know the first state to the ground state is that it needs to disperse this energy out somehow and the only way it can do it is by sending out a photon with this uh, difference in energy that's essentially the process of stimulated emission it's that if you send a photon with the correct energy and wavelength then it will cause the electron to drop from the excited state to a lower state essentially if it's the first excited state then it would drop to the ground state second excited state to the first or however it may be Okay, so when the photon hits the electron, that's when it lowers down the state. Exactly. Um, so essentially what you're doing is that you're using the exact property of the electron in order to determine which photon you need to send in. What I mean by this is that in quantum mechanics, all things are quantized. Remember how we're talking about quantization or what quantum mechanics means? It really means that on the fundamental level of our universe, energy is discrete. It comes in certain values. It was previously thought that energy before quantum mechanics, it was thought that energy was like a range in which you can start from, let's say, zero to infinity or whatever. Well, not really infinity because, well, infinity because you would have a black hole at infinity. But um, let's say zero to 10 and energy would be able to go from zero 0.0001, 0.0002, and like so on and so forth. Like there was no, you could keep going in and in and in and like have an infinite amount of numbers between zero and 10. But in quantum mechanics, that's not true. You have zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. You have discrete numbers and there's nothing smaller than that. So, so you by doing into decimal point in quantum mechanics? No, this is actually one of the most fundamental properties of quantum mechanics. It's that you don't have the ability to have a continuous scale, but it's actually discrete. That makes sense, right? No. <laughs> I don't, I oh, don't understand what, why. Why in quantum mechanics you don't have uh, half numbers? So don't really think about it as like half numbers or f- whole numbers. I was kind of just using uh, an arbitrary scale to basically give an example. The idea is that energy, distance, time, all of these uh, fundamental constructs of the universe are discrete. What I mean by that is that if you try to zoom in further, you won't be able to. You can't break it down. Whatever measures uh, measurement unit we're using, it can be broken down to smaller bits because the way we refer to it is that this is the smallest bit possible exactly and that's the scale we're using yep you got it that's exactly right and that's essentially how the physics works and how all of our quantum uh, quantum mechanical equations even exist and even work to prove the experiments that we've done to show that quantum mechanics is really a true construct of our universe you know it's really real i want to i want to take us back to uh the stimulated emission of lasers, yes. what it means. But yeah, um, that's essentially why we even got onto this whole little, you know, whole little extra route. It's because it's necessary to understand that for electrons or for orbital states, um, this energy is also discrete. And so you're going to have a certain amount of energy be released or necessary to get an electron from a ground state to an excited state and vice versa. So you can be... You can be certain what amount of energy is going to come out. Like you can, you can calculate it into specific numbers because uh, it's discrete. It can't be lower than that, right? So there's that's exactly right. So yeah, that you know that's exactly right. And so now we have this number, and so we have the exact amount of energy that we need for a photon to have. And we also have correlations in quantum mechanics that allows us to figure out the wavelength directly associated 
with that amount of energy. And so this is all you really need to figure out what wavelength of light and essentially what energy of light you will need in order to cause this electron to drop from the excited state to the ground state. The principle behind this is that as long as you match the conditions correctly, it allows for the the electron move from this excited state to this ground state because you're essentially creating a perfect match, if you will. You're creating the exact conditions that it would have had if it released the energy by itself. So this is really cool because now you're using this certain wavelength of light and it will cause the electron to drop from the higher state to the lower state. In this process, it will actually also emit a photon or it will emit light with the same exact conditions of the light that you put into the system. So now if you think about it like this, we sent in one photon with certain properties that causes the electron to drop from this higher state to the lower state. And in this process, the electron that drops also emits a photon with the same exact properties of the one that we sent in. So now we have two photons with the same properties. This is super important. This is actually one of the most important things about laser technology. It's that now you have twice as many photons and they're going to be in sync with each other. They're going to have the same phase and the same properties or the same phase, the same energy, wavelength, all that. Now you can actually kind of think about it as people when they're doing the wave in like a, a football stadium, you know, they're like, woo, and like, you know, you have to move all together. That's the idea of coherence. It's that you're moving all together in the same exact uh, like movement and pattern. Wait, I, I understand now, that once once you hit the electron with the photon, it generates another photon with the same properties as first photon, and now you have two photons. I want I wonder what happened to that initial electron that went down a state because two photons are not enough to generate a laser or a large enough light. You probably need to do this repeatedly again and again to get a larger number, right? That's exactly right. How does this keep on working? What happens to the electron that we started with initially? Yeah, so the cool thing is that in a laser system, you don't have just one atom. You know, things are composed of many atoms. Now you have to think about it that if we have these two photons now, they're going to be able to create a chain reaction. And so now all of the other electrons and all the other atoms that are already going to be in this excited state are now going to be basically falling into the same exact process that happened with the first atom. So now, you know, the process of this whole first atom, it started with one, and then now you have two photons, and now these two photons are going to go and hit two other atoms. Then you got four, and then you have eight, and then boom, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, it... From four, it goes to 16, right? Because it's... Well, no, because the thing is that each atom or each photon will hit one atom. Yeah, it's like a double rate, if you will. 2N rate. Now, what you have is that you have this whole chain reaction start. And so now all of these photons are going to start moving together, you know, moving in this wave pattern. The two ends of a laser, you're going to have two mirrors, one that is a full mirror. And at the other end, you're going to have a partial mirror or partially transparent mirror. The important thing about this is that uh, basically these two mirrors, they act like walls for the photons. And so like an amplifier. Yeah, ex yeah, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, the whole pro the whole reason to have these mirrors is to amplify the light waves. And so they're going to hit back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until enough atoms have been stimulated and enough atoms have gone through the process of stimulated emission. And so now once it hits a peak threshold, this is going to cause a beam to be projected from the partial mirror side of the laser. And so you also then have a focusing lens at the end of the partial mirror, and it focuses all the photons into, into like one perfect line. And that's what creates the even more amplified emission of this light. And that's essentially so, what a laser does. So the partial mirror, it uh, takes the part of, imagine, 
a bouncer at a party only when you have enough energy or a certain level of energy that's when it can break through. So the light that goes through this partial mirror will only go through if it's sufficient enough. That means that it bounced off and it has enough energy with it, right? Did I get it correctly? Uh, yeah. The analogy I would have used more is that Let's say you have like a group of uh, like you and a group of friends. And if there's enough of you, you can just like overwhelm the bouncer. <laughs> like yeah. you guys just push yeah. through. So it has to be a certain number of you guys that are able to just push through this bouncer. And so yeah. that's the idea. Now you'll maybe asking yourself like, how did these electrons even become uh, excited in the first place? Right? Because they're not naturally excited. That. How did they get excited in the first place? And how do they keep on staying or getting back excited? Because once you send all the photons in and you take them down to the ground state, and then I just, for me, it's a question mark hanging in the air here. So they're in their ground state. How does this process keep on working? Because if I play, if I use a laser, it goes on for a long time, uh, meaning there's some kind of a, a repetition process that goes back to being excited. Yep, exactly. That actually I can answer with uh, one answer. The thing is that every single laser you've ever owned has a battery, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> now that yawn looked like it was very... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, every single laser you have comes with a battery. And so this battery is essentially, you know, creating an electrical current battery system has a current and so what's happening here is that the energy from this current the energy from the battery is what's feeding the electrons of these atoms and allowing them to either to go back to their excited state and that allows for the process to keep going so the battery energizes the electrons to go back to their excited state and also it powers off the initiation of the photons, right? Because something needs to send the photons into the electron. Exactly. And that's something called a flash tube, a little device that uh, emits photons at the proper wavelength and energy. Well, I don't have to, I don't really have to say the proper wavelength or energy because the thing is that with electromagnetic waves, energy wavelength and frequency are all directly correlated so uh you know a certain wavelength of gamma rays has a certain amount of energy and has a certain frequency certain blue light energy and frequency wavelength so every single wavelength of light is characterized by these three properties so yeah that's basically how a laser works you may be asking yourself how many excited states does a laser that i normally use have based on how we've been talking you would think it's only the first excited state right that's not true the lasers we use as like for fun or the lasers that physicists use in our labs are normally or for the most part uh for atomic state laser systems you have your third excited state your second excited state your first excited state and your ground excited state this is really important because now what's happening is that you're allowing for the electron to drop from this third excited state, the highest excited state, to uh, its third excited, second excited state. And this drop essentially is what creates the first photons. Now, naturally, over time, these photons are, are sorry, these electrons are going to drop to their, uh, their first excited state and then eventually their ground excited state. The only reason why they do that is because electrons want to always occupy the lowest energy state. This is just the fundamental principle of quantum mechanics. It's a fundamental principle of nature. Every, everything wants to seek the less chaotic states. In the whole process or in the whole time of uh, basically the light building up, these electrons are going to want to drop to their lowest energy state. What's important is that because there's now a buffer, there's now these four states, the third, second, and first excited state, as well as the ground state, it means that there's more time to essentially keep the electrons in this higher energy state. Why is this important? It is probably what you're asking yourself. It's important because 
with this extra time, these electrons keep recharging to this higher energy state and then become subjected to these photons that are in the system already. This allows for a continuous pulse, or not a pulse, but a continuous beam of laser light. So if we only had the first excitement, excited state, it would be on off on off because it would need to re-excite. But now because there's like a ladder, it can keep on going and the battery takes the electrons back up to a higher excited state all the time. There's always a buffer. Yeah. Um, so yes, but I also want to bring up the fact that if we only had a laser system with the two states, the ground state and the first state, the light that would be produced would actually be microwave um, electromagnetic light or the microwave region of the electromagnetic spectrum. Because and so, it doesn't have enough energy. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly yeah. right. I have a follow-up question on it. I was wondering about different types of lasers, starting with, I have one device that generates red light lasers, green light lasers, and uh, what's the third one? I think the other one is blue. It's most likely blue. I was actually proud. I was just about to get to that. So with the two-state system, you would have microwave radiation, right? With a three-state system, you actually wouldn't have visible light either. You would have infrared light. With infrared light, if you use the right corrective lens, you could actually turn the infrared light into visible light on the red spectrum, so the lower spectrum, because red is the closest thing to infrared light. Uh, with a four-state uh, laser system, you're able to then breach into the visible spectrum. In other words, the color region. Now, the difference is, well, the difference depends on the atoms or the molecule that is being used. More advanced lasers, the ones we use in labs, are uh, gas-based lasers, which are usually a mix of helium and neon. And these are often uh, green light lasers as well as red light lasers. For the lasers that you have, you know, these are more on like the more basic sense of lasers. And so it's also still using these properties, but they're not going to be gas, uh, gas lasers. They're going to be solid state lasers. And again, it's dependent entirely on the composition of the material inside the laser. Uh, essentially, the composition of this laser determines what atoms you're using, and the certain atoms you're using determine the energy of the light that is going to be uh, emitted from the whole stimulated emission process. Different energy levels will resolve in different colored lasers. Exactly. A lower energy will be red and a higher energy will be blue. And then a medium energy will be green. This is the physics that governs what color light comes from your laser. And what makes some lasers, crazy green lasers, can shoot up to the sky and you see the beam very bright for a large distance. What causes it to be so strong? You know, the color is still green, which is a medium energy level we just described. What causes it to be stronger beam? Yeah, that can be uh, attributed to a few things. You can have a, a larger setup. So more atoms that are able to be um, stimulated will cause more luminescent light to be created. Um, and so you got to remember, it's all going to be the same energy because if it's a higher energy or a lower energy, it's going to be a different color. Yeah, so it so, has to be the, the same energy, just larger quantity. Yeah, and larger quantity focused into one point. So basically, so, if you have, if you have uh, more electrons to start with, or you're sending in initially more photons, and you still direct it all to one point, it would affect the strength of the laser and not at what, when they say strength, maybe that's not the correct physical term, but for me, when I mean strong, I mean that it goes for a large distance and you can see it clearly. Yeah, yeah. The, so the term we use is uh, luminescent. Luminescent. Uh, a more intense luminescence is, uh, is essentially what's being caused here, or is essentially what allows for this laser to continue going all the way up. 
for far distances without losing its strength or luminescence. This is basically the entire physics and the entire quantum electrodynamic principles that guide how laser technology even works. Sweet. Yeah. I think we've I think we've covered lasers. So uh let's let's move on to you can choose the next one. We have photovoltaic cells, MRI machines. Let's do the photovoltaic cells uh, with solar panels because that really interests me. And I think we'll save MRI and electron microscope to the next episode. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. All right. So how do solar panels even work? You know, this is a question that many people ask themselves and a lot of people are, you know, they, they know that light comes in, it hits the panel, some process happens some magic happens and then this magic turns the light to electricity. A lot of people are cool with that explanation. Now, let's dive into the real physics behind it. Essentially, how we even figured out that we could turn light into electrical energy. This is going to be also a, uh, a bit of like a materials composition intro as well. So certain materials have things that are called P-holes and, <laughs> um, sorry, I'm a bit immature. That's not like, what did you say? But, uh, like the places where they pee from? Yeah. <laughs> where do fish pee from? How do fish pee? Ooh, all right. That's a good one. How do fish pee? You can take it back home uh, for homework. Come back to me uh, next episode. <laughs> Let's get to the P-holes of, of solar panels. I'm confused. Okay, yeah. So we have P-holes and N-holes. These are spaces in the atoms that make up the materials that we use for solar panels. These spaces are where electrons can be deposited. You, you can't see me. Like, you can, but I have a shocked face right now because I'm like, what has P-holes and, like, I'm confused what we're talking about here. Atoms in general? Certain materials. And also, these certain materials don't naturally always have them. We actually have to do a process called doping to certain materials that basically makes it have these, like, missing spaces for the electrons. Did you say doping? Is that physical term? Yeah, yeah, it is. I know a few people that do this doping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's this kind of doping, but... Uh... <laughs> you know, they all have b-holes and they all have uh, missing missing particles. <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, so basically what's happening here is that when light hits these solar panels, it's causing the electrons to gain energy right? Because from, remember, Einstein's photovoltaic theory, once light hits a conducting surface, essentially a surface that is metal usually, it causes the electrons to gain the energy from the photons, which causes an electric current to start moving, right? Yeah. Now, what happens is that these electrons are starting to move. Moving electrons is known as a current. And so what's happening now is that these electrons, once they gain this energy, they fill the P-holes. Now, once, they're, once they fill these P-holes, they actually start filling the atomic structure. Usually, silicon is what is used for um, solar panels or for the P level of the solar panels. And so now what's happening is that these electrons are filling up these P-holes, and then this process essentially creates a, uh, a difference, a voltage difference. Because remember, I said there's the N-type holes, or the N-level of the solar panel, and below that, or I didn't really, I should have made this distinct, the N-level is first, right under the uh, the part of the solar panel that everyone sees, you know, the those blue, you know, the, bl the blue top of the solar panels, like the glass part. Of yeah. Basically right under that is the N-type semiconductor, and then below that is the P-type semiconductor. Now, remember what I said about how batteries work? 
they have a potential difference. The top half of the battery usually is positive and the bottom half is negative. And so when you connect the top half to something and you connect the bottom or you connect the top half to something and you connect that something to the bottom half, it creates a full circuit, which allows for energy to flow. This same exact process is actually happening in the solar panel. So when sunlight hits that glass, that reflective or semi-reflective surface, the photons are entering the N-type semiconductor. All right, so uh, one question. Do you, are you familiar with what a semiconductor is or? Nope. So what is it? it's, a conduct, it's a conductor that's not entirely a conductor. Essentially, you can think about it as a certain material. It has conducting properties, but it also has insulating properties. And so remember how there's conductors and there's insulators. Conductors allow for electrons to flow, but insulators allow for energy to be resisted or allows for energy to flow less freely. The same, you know, same idea is why you can't use wood to conduct electricity because that's an insulator, but you can use metal because it's a conductor. And so a semiconductor is right in the middle of conductor and a insulator. Why is this important? It's really important because if it was a full conductor, you would have a free flow of electrons from the conductor space to the, or you would have a full flow of electrons from the N type or the top level to the P level, which would cause the entire system to become either negatively charged or, well, not or, it would become negatively charged, which is a problem because if the entire solar panel is negatively charged, there's no voltage difference. There's no positive and negative anymore. So you don't have a battery. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense, everything you said, but I still don't grasp the whole idea of it. Okay. Well, the whole idea of the solar panel, because I'm, I'm nowhere near that yet, but... Well, no, no. Is it... Yeah, with the semiconductor. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, that's no problem. So, what the whole idea of the semiconductor is that it allows for electrons to move, but not move so fast or so freely that the entire solar cell becomes negatively charged. I see. So it has some uh, balancing forces that make it slow down as if you have a four lane road, but only you only open up one lane for traffic to, to go through. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy. And so the whole reason why I've been talking about, we have the N type semiconductor and we have the P type semiconductor is because in the N type semiconductor, we don't have holes, but we rather have where the electrons reside. This is basically where the electrons begin. They have their natural state. And so, you know, they're just existing inside of the N type silicon. So uh, again, uh, the semiconductors are usually composed of a material. In the case of uh, solar cells, we use uh, silicon. Now, why this is important is because we're able to create a charge difference where the n-type silicon, the first layer, or the n-type semiconductor will have overall negative charge. And then the p-type semiconductor or the p-type silicon will end up having positive charge. And so now we have a charge difference or we have a voltage difference, which allows for, as we know, current to flow when you connect it to something. That's really the, the main takeaway from this, this whole idea of semiconductors. It's that they allow for electrons to move, but not move so fast that the entire solar cell or the entire solar panel becomes negatively charged. But now there's actually a voltage difference, which is exactly what a battery is. I see the head nodding. Yeah, so that's good. Really? So, uh, I imagine lots of small batteries inside being created from this silicon-made uh, cells that makes them charge. But N N part. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a complex process to to really take hold of. You know, that's why these things weren't invented until kind of recently. Not to mention silicon is. Uh, sort of new not not really like new new but it took a little while to find the right material i'm gonna i'm gonna step back a little bit 
you know the whole composition of the solar panel, right? It's the glass lens on top, that blue glass that everyone knows. You're going to have the N-type silicon or your N-type semiconductor as the first level under the glass. Then uh, you're going to have your P-type uh, silicon or P-type semiconductor as the last level. In between the um, the N-type semiconductor and the P-type semiconductor, you have this like this little layer of ins of uh, it's called the depletion layer. It's essentially uh, just a little layer to help move the electrons from the N-type to the P-type. But you don't have to really worry about that for the sense of our discussion. So just worry about it has the glass lens as the first. You have your N-type semiconductor uh, as, the, as the next layer. And then you have your P-type semiconductor as the last layer. The N-type uh, semiconductor or the N-type silicon is going to be the one that has the electrons already in it. The P-type sil uh, sil silicon or the P-type semiconductor is going to be the one that has the P-holes. P-holes are essentially what the electrons in the N-type silicon will end up going into and filling when they go into the P-type silicon. Yep. Okay. So the whole reason why the electrons even move from the N-type to the P-type is because once the photons hit the electrons in the N-type, they're now going to have energy. They're going to have more energy, right? Because they want, because to, of the move. They want to move to a higher state, right? Yeah. Or they want to move to, uh, well, yeah, they want to move to a higher state. And so the whole point of having the P-holes is that these holes are in higher orbital levels or higher energy levels in the silicon. So the whole thing about P-type silicon is that they have electrons missing or they have these holes available for the electrons in the N-type silicon to go to. The electrons are moving from the atoms in the N-type silicon to the atoms in the P-type silicon because there's an orbital or energy level available for them to occupy. But before, when we talked about lasers, you said that once a photon hits an electron, it goes down a level of the excitement level. So how does this work the opposite now that it goes up to a higher excited level? I'm, I'm actually very happy that you asked that. The reason why is because that means that there is one little thing that may not have, or maybe I, I didn't explain it fully when we were talking about uh, photovoltaic theory in our last episode. But the whole thing is that with Einstein's uh, photovoltaic theory, which actually uh, he, he came up with in 1905, in the last episode, I said 1920, which is which was wrong. Um, 1920 is actually when he came up with uh, laser theory. In his, his original photovoltaic theory, it was that when photons hit a conducting surface, they transfer their energy to the electron, which allows them to gain more energy and go into a higher excited state. Now you're asking yourself, how does it go both ways? Or how you, what you just asked me is, how does it go both ways? The whole thing about laser theory is that Einstein was like, all right, if it can go one way, could it go another? And he was like, it should be able to. But the thing is, you need to match the conditions perfectly. And so that's what we were talking about uh, when we were talking about lasers. It's that, remember, you had to match the exact energy level for the photon that was going into the system. You're matching the exact energy level of the electron for when it goes from its excited state to the lower state. Because that we can mathematically calculate using our quantum mechanical equations that we already have. And so you need to match the photon to this energy level exactly in order to create stimulated emission. So if you're not exact and you just accept any photons like a solar panel does, then it takes it up. That's the natural state. The natural state exactly. of electrons that are being hit by photons is to go up an excitement level with lasers is um, i'm quoting here like unnatural but meaning it's like under lab conditions when you're able to calculate atmosphere uh yeah yeah exactly or environment environment that's the right term sorry <laughs> yeah that's okay so you know lasers they're not a natural phenomenon 
there's something that occur in lab settings or controlled settings. That's essentially the whole difference between using any light and using a specific type of light to change the energy level of electrons. So yeah, like I said, really happy you asked that question. I want to go back to the solar panels. I understand now how the light hits the glass, the blue glass, then it hits the n-type silicon or n-type semiconductor, and it sends out the more excited state electron to the p-type semiconductor because it has space to hold it, and that's its natural flow. And then what happens? So now what happens is that you're creating a charge difference as uh, more of these electrons are flowing from the N-type to the P-type, you're creating a more negative space or a more negative charge in the N-type silicon. And then the P-type silicon, because it's now gaining all this energy, is becoming positively charged relative to the n-type silicon and so now you can think about it as the p-type silicon is now the positive side of the battery and the n-type silicon is now the negative side of the battery so now what you do is you you connect the whole wire system from the negative side and you connect that to a uh i don't want to say bat oh it's battery you're essentially connecting it to a battery that can be recharged, um, just like any of our rechargeable batteries that we use for many devices today, even our phones. So you're connecting the negative side to the battery, and then you're connecting that battery to the positive side. And then this is what creates electron flow or a current. This current charges that battery with the power from the sun. And then this recharged battery is essentially what your home, your car, your all of your devices use for energy now. And so that's that's basically how a solar panel works. Wow. I think I actually understand it. The pee holes, once they are being filled, can they keep on being filled up or do they have to release the energy to the battery before they can be refilled? Yeah, and so that's the cool thing about having this whole connected system. It's that once enough of the P-holes are filled, it creates the charge difference. It creates the positive P-type silicon, and it creates the negative N-type silicon. And then the energy starts flowing from the N-type to the battery, and this creates a charge difference, which allows for the electrons in the P-type to go back to the N-type, and then creates the process continuously. And then you also have to consider the fact that uh, the battery is being, the battery that's being charged is being used for your home. And so, you know, that's going to be continuously used and drained out and then refilled and drained and refilled and drained and so on and so forth. If your battery is full, what happens then? Yeah, essentially then the whole process becomes to a halt unless you have like backup systems where you can charge more batteries in order to, well, okay, so that's not, that's not true. So uh, the cool thing about how we've set up the whole solar system in many countries of the world is that if your own home becomes, or your own home battery or batteries, however many you have, become filled, the excess energy actually gets routed to power stations and then they actually will pay you for the energy. What happens if you don't have an outcome for this energy, like your battery is filled, you don't have an outsourcing place that you send your energy to, does it get, does it heat up and explode or the, like what happens physically there? Yeah, great question. So based on the physics, if your battery is full and nothing can flow anymore, then that would mean that the system would be in an equilibrium. It would be in a stable state. That would mean that all the P-type holes or all the P-holes in the P-type silicon would be filled and all of the electrons in the N-type silicon would be vacant or then you would have N-holes in the N-type silicon. That would mean that nothing would flow anymore and the solar panel would heat up just because, you know, it's it's sun hitting a surface. So anything where sun is hitting a surface heats up. But that's one of the, that's one of the cool things about us using darker color for the glass, you know, a, a dark blue. It's that. Well, actually, no, sorry. So it's not good. thing. If anything, we should use like a one and you can't really use a lighter color. Forget it. 
that was, that was going to be a different thing. If you use the lighter color for the glass, then it would allow for, you know, not as much heat to build up, but you have to use a darker color for the glass because you want to absorb more light, yeah. you know, darker color yeah. to absorb more light. Uh, just like anything, the whole thing would heat up and the system would slightly degrade over time just because, you know, it's heating up and then the components are actually starting to heat up themselves. And then that slowly causes uh, degradation of the system. But, you know, that's that's something that's unlikely or the way we've designed it, it will never happen like that. There's always a way for the, there's always a place for the energy to go. Yeah, yeah. I'm just asking to understand the fundamentals yeah. of it, but I'm sure that everyone that has to do with the practicality of creating solar panels have created some safety measurements and some mechanisms or ideas of where to, to channel this energy in case the battery is filled or if there is any problem with the energy flow to the battery or whatnot. Yeah, just to essentially just answer your question in one one sentence. So nothing would happen, like it wouldn't explode or anything like that, just because uh, the system is now in equilibrium. So it's in a stable state and no, no more energy will be flowing. The light that hits the solar cell would just reflect off and not deposit any more energy into the system because there's no electrons energy or for the photons to give their energy to. Super cool, man. Thank you for explaining that. I think we will finish off with that and we'll continue in the next episode with the other topics. I learned a lot. Lasers and uh, solar panels, two things that I'm very interested in and they are yeah. in daily use in our world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much, Eitan. Thank you for the audience to, uh, that appeared with us. I hope that you learned something new. If you have any questions or any feedbacks, we're happy to get it. Where can people send uh, the feedbacks to, Ethan? So we have our email in the description on either Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts. It's going to be whyitworkspod at gmail.com. And if you guys have any devices that you use today or anything you've ever been interested in learning about, send it over. I'm more than happy to talk about it with Niv, and I'm more than, I'm more than positive he would love to learn about it as well. I'm negative, but only because we want the flow to happen. So he's positive, I'm negative. And then uh, the charge just flows from Ethan to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm positive as well. We, <laughs> we found a quantum way to make it work. Please uh, subscribe to the channel and share it with the friends or family that you think they'd be interested in this topic. Thank you for spending the last hour with us. With that saying, have a great one, guys. 